Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us, the executive editor of the Weekly Standard, Terry Eastland. Uh, Terry, so the Supreme Court got together to talk about affirmative action and whether or not it may or may not be constitutional. And one thing I've been assured is they have not decided whether or not it is constitutional. Well, that was not the issue in the case. Um, what the court decided, uh, the case, by the way, is named Chouette against Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action. Uh, what happened here was um, that Michigan, uh, the, the voters of Michigan, had approved a, a, an initiative to amend the Constitution back in 2006. Uh, and they amended the Constitution so that it would require the colorblind treatment of of, uh, of applicants uh, to institutions of higher education like the University of Michigan or the Michigan Law School, et cetera. Uh, as well, it would also prohibit uh, the use of preferences um, in uh, public employment or contracting. So it was a quite, a quite broad law the way it was written, and it was passed by the voters by a vote of 58 to 52 to 42 percent. So um, that's what animated a group to come forward and to challenge that law, that new addition to the Michigan Constitution. In their case, they lost this case in the Supreme Court. That's what happened. Uh, the Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action uh, uh, learned from the court that, uh, that, that their side uh, did not have a winning argument. I think the basic question was whether, was whether, the, was whether uh, an actual ballot measure is how you decide the case. Yes, and so you have Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor. I mean, she comes forward and writes that uh, uh, the, the the minorities now will have to go and pass a constitutional amendment if they want to have preferences, and that that whole process burdens them in a way that is unconstitutional. The problem is the Constitution doesn't speak to this uh, question. Uh, our federal Constitution doesn't. And uh, that's what Justice Kennedy said in his response to her, as well as uh, he discussed some of the court's previous rulings, there, there's a confusion. There's a lot of confusion over these uh, previous rulings, and, mm -hmm. and the justices divide across the court on this question. But basically, Kennedy uh, said that uh, the precedents don't say that, that uh, we have to uh, change the political process to accommodate uh, disfavored minorities in some special way. So I know this may sound like a confusing case, and it's got, it's got a lot of elements in it, but the fact of the matter is that Six, ju six justices agreed that, um, uh, that that what the voters had done was permissible. So and this is what's confusing that, for us because that, there are nine yeah. justices, but one of them yeah. recused herself. That leaves us eight. But by my last count, Terry, there are 327 different opinions. I don't understand how that's possible. I mean, okay, maybe well, I, I exaggerate I, slightly. I was thinking anyone listening to me is probably confused because there is there is that. There's a lot of there are a lot of opinions. I mean, you have Justice Kennedy writing the opinion for what is called a plurality, meaning more than one justice. Uh -huh. uh, and he's writing for Chief Justice Roberts and also for Justice Sam Alito. And then you have uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas joining him in, a, in an opinion. And then you have Justice Breyer, who writes separately by himself. Now, all six <laughs> of those justices agree that um, uh, they should not strike down the Michigan law. The law itself is valid, so they agree. And then you have Justice Elena Kagan, who's sitting on the sidelines. She was the Solicitor General for President Obama, mm -hmm. as we know. And uh, she was recused in the case, presumably because she had worked on it uh, while she was Solicitor General. And then you come to Sonia Sotomayor, and that justice, uh, uh, who, by the way, read her 
or summarized, I should say, her opinion from the bench. It's a quite long opinion. It runs in, I think it was 58 pages. Uh, but she writes, and she's joined only by Ruth Ginsburg. So you have a vote here of 6-2 to two with one abstention, so to speak. It's very disturbing for those of us who are not court watchers or lawyers or whatever. We just want to think that when judges sit down and try to figure something out, that they're going to leave their partisanship aside. And this case shows, I think, that the partisanship or the ideology is glaring. I mean, the idea that the argument is Michigan shouldn't be allowed to not have race-based affirmative action, even if they don't want to have it, because that would harm people who have been judged based on race is so convoluted that the I think a typical person looks at it and says, oh, come on, you're pushing a policy, you're pushing an ideology. You're not trying to resolve what's legal or illegal for a, an American voter. Yeah, well, I will say to Justice Breyer's credit, um, uh, he uh, did not uh, join the liberal side, so to speak. I mean, he, he said, look, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids Michigan from doing this. It can either have uh, preferences or it cannot have preferences, and there's no no compulsion from the constitutional standpoint. What do you think the uh, legal health of race-based set-asides, race-based uh, college admissions, et cetera, is currently? Is this a idea whose time has come and gone inside the Supreme Court, or do you think that, no, this is just a short-term setback, and if President Obama can get a couple of appointees, uh, they'll be right back in affirmative action business? Well, I don't think so. Um, I think it's another limitation on affirmative action. It's another loss, if you will, for those forces. But you've got to keep something in mind. It's been going on for about five decades now. Uh, it, is the, uh, it is the policy that has always been promised to end soon but never does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's never temporary. It's become de facto permanent. And uh, the reason it does is because... Um, uh, you had a case, for example, the, the two Michigan affirmative action cases back in 2003. This would have been 11 years ago. Those two cases um, uh, constrained the use of race at that time, but uh, they didn't totally eliminate it. And what happens is, you, is that you constrain it, you, it, and then it grows back, and it's hard to get at, it's hard to detect, it's hard to litigate against. And so that's why I foresee a, a future of some sort for the use of preferences. Um, and we'll see if um, there are more plaintiffs. It costs a lot of money for people to get involved right. in these law cases, by the way. One of the things that's uh, disturbing as well is how little conversation there is about the outcome of race-based uh, college admissions. And there's so much information available. For example, the disproportionate dropout rate for African-American males. And you can find a direct correlation between the fact that you have a student who has an SAT score that matches the median, say, at Duke, but he finds himself recruited to go to, say, a, a, an Ivy, where the average SAT score is 30 or 40 points higher, and he's now suddenly one of the you know, lowest test score students in the group. That's going to have an impact on how people do over time. That's just a statistical fact. And so you end up with a guy who could have been, you know, really a top-notch student and on to become a doctor or a lawyer at Duke who ends up being a struggling student at a school where he never would have attended other than the issue of race. Do people, uh, uh, Terry, just not talk about what happens to real, live, black, Hispanic, Asian students under these policies? Well, probably not Asian. 
but uh, well, no Asian uh, Asian students who lose slots at universities, they would have oh, gotten who, who lose slots. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and so I mean, in Asian other words, real live people, yeah, to, real live people suffer from these policies, not in the abstract, but in the concrete. And it's fascinating how little you hear that discussed. Yeah, well, uh, as a matter of fact, a friend of mine, Stuart Taylor, uh, co-wrote a book uh, last year about this precise issue. Issue. It was called mismatching, mm-hmm. and it was how. Students are mismatched to universities, how um, uh, certain favored minority students um, will go to, say, a Yale when they should be going to a Michigan if they were to be around those with comparable skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. Someone at Michigan, on the other hand, might uh, better be at a school below that, say at yeah. Wayne State, and on down the list you go. By the way, uh, admissions in higher education only affect, really, the elite schools. In other words, where there's a competition for limited seats, mm-hmm. if you have unlimited seats, none of this matters. Exactly. But but it's in that very intense area, the 30 to 40 percent of all schools that you that you have these issues arising, and the whole mismatch phenomenon uh, is it's controversial. I'm persuaded by what uh, Stuart Taylor reported in his book, but basically what he showed, he and his co-author showed was that was this systematic mismatching and how it harms minorities and this and you raise that point it's a very good one i think the court if it becomes persuaded that harm is being done to the ostensible beneficiaries if the court reaches that point i think we will have a, a rapid demise of, of of affirmative action and then you have not only do you have some groups like asians losing seats but you also have a at least one study that shows that the black students who are uh, uh attending these elite schools Eighty-seven percent of them, according to one study, are middle or middle income or wealthy. In other words, you're not reaching the economically disadvantaged, which is the goal. So, you're, on the one hand, you're harming students, and on the other hand, you're doing very little good. If the goal is to reach to people who, you know, for whatever reason, are from a lower socioeconomic group who need a little boost to get up and running. Well, uh, I have another friend who's written in this area, the socioeconomic affirmative action. He's mm-hmm. he's for colorblind admissions. In other words, he doesn't want race to be used as a criterion to admit or whatever. But uh, but what he wants to see is more focus on, on such questions as, uh, are you the first in your family to go to college, right. that sort of stuff. Uh, and so from a socioeconomic point of view, you could get a, a diversity of, of students, but it might not be a diversity in terms of, uh, of what they're getting now in terms of race. But I think that this, as a result of this decision uh, yesterday, that socioeconomic affirmative action might have some legs. Thanks, Terry, for that update on the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.